Hey guys, it's Matthew. Thank you for hanging in there with us. I know it's been a little while since we've had an episode. We have a good one tonight. Chris Allen is on the show. We're going to be talking about faith-based movies. Uh, we actually recorded this about a week and a half ago, um, but it took a, it took forever to edit this. Uh, Skype chewed up some of the audio, as it does every once in a while, and it just took forever to get this put back together, but I think we did. It's in good condition, so I hope you guys enjoy that. I want to make an announcement real quick. We do have a Patreon page set up for the podcast and the blog. So we've been publishing content on the Patreon feed for the patrons. If you want to check that out, you can find that at Patreon uh, slash Matthew E. Pierce, the name of the blog. Uh, pretty cheap if you want to support that. Just a couple bucks gives you access to the Patreon feed. And the stuff that we're going to be publishing over there. Um, shout out to Johnny Collins. Shout out to Connie Galavinsky. Shout out to Andy Whitaker. Some of the people who have already signed up to support the podcast and to support the blog. Thank you for doing that. Um, all right, let's get to the show. Thank you, guys. Passion of the Christ is kind of like showgirls. There's, <laughs> There's our bumper quote right there. <laughs> back to the show thank you for joining us on another episode of fun sexy bible time bringing back a former co-host to take another take another round with us from the backwoods of alabama chris allen how are you very good thank you i know the last time we talked um we i think it was december we we talked about you you're building some fortifications on your back porch for possums um is is the possum still in, encamped with you the, the possums and the raccoons and the cats, they're all, they, they live together in harmony. <laughs> okay. So, so good news there. Um, <clears throat> have you, I, I got to ask you this because you're my, a fellow resident of, of the backwoods. Have the snakes begun moving on you as well? I, I've seen any this year. Okay. I, we talked a little bit about this. I was in fact... Um, my, my abode was attacked by a, a marauding snake last night. Um, you probably from over the, uh, the wood line heard the shouts and sounds of me, um, doing battle with it, with a, a shovel on my front porch. It's probably not a good sign that it's May and the snakes are already attacking us. What kind of snake was it? it was a, I think it was a chicken snake, but it is a, it's a big one. And it was like literally trying to crawl inside my front door. Yeah, see, chicken snakes are kind of scary because they're they're they got that ambiguous coloring. And <laughs> is it a copperhead? Is it a rattlesnake? I don't know. It's you know, uh, it's not clearly green or something that just you know to to let you know it's okay. So it's kind of scary. Yeah, because if you get a if you get a black snake in Alabama, you know you're okay because there's there's no poisonous black snakes in Alabama, but. Um... Yeah, the chicken snake. It's it's it is like you said, ambiguous. Well, there is the moody cobra. Do you remember the moody cobra? The, the moody cobra. No, <laughs> what's what's that? You'll have a hard time finding this because this this was a little bit before the internet. But uh, this is circa two thousand and one. Okay. Uh, some yokel down in Moody that was uh, harboring uh, <laughs> illegal reptiles uh, <laughs> lost his cobra and it, it got loose and. Uh, 
for months, you know, it would periodically in the news, they'd say, you know, police have still not found the Moody Cobra. And uh, I thought they, they missed a wonderful opportunity for, like, tourism. They could have an annual celebration where people go out and, you know, search the woods for the Moody Cobra. And, you know, but uh, probably dead by now. That was 15, 16 years ago. But Yeah, probably so. Probably say it wasn't like one of those unlicensed petting zoos you see, like on the uh, advertising. No, I think it was just somebody's house. Okay. <laughs> Roll Tide. That's all you can say. Okay. Um, last time you were on the show, we talked about Star Wars. We did like you're pretty much the resident uh, fun, sexy Bible time Star Wars episode or expert. So, pray for you. You can put that on your resume. But uh, we talked about Star Wars last time. Uh, since then, uh, Rogue One has come out, which I think we both enjoyed pretty well. Also had the the trailer for the new film come out. Any any thoughts on that? Um, it didn't really show me much. Um, you know, I, I want to know who the last Jedi is. I like Rey. She's she's one of the more interesting characters, you know, post uh, Return of the Jedi. So. Uh-huh. I guess here's my question for you. Uh, do you think they're going to let Luke sort of develop into this new character? Or do you think he's sort of going to follow the Ben Kenobi character arc where he shows up for a few scenes and then just sort of backs out? Well, uh, you know, the Skywalkers have have always been the center of the, this nine-film series. Uh-huh. Uh, so... I don't know how you make it not have Luke become an important character. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think he's going to back out. I, I think his. I mean, Ray's obviously going to be the star, but uh, they don't really have anyone else with her. I mean, um, I, Finn. I don't know if he's going to make much of an appearance in this one. He seems like he's still convalescing. So, mm-hmm. uh, he, here's my predictions for Episode Eight. Ray has to lose some body part because that's Jedi tradition. You have to lose something. Uh, I hope it's not a hand. Hands are getting kind of boring. I'm hoping it's like a leg or a weird facial scar, but she's going to lose something. Mm-hmm. That's my prediction for episode eight. Okay. Is it weird that I'm like almost as excited for the Han Solo movie? That is weird because I am so not excited for the Han Solo really? movie. Okay. Yeah. I think I think uh, Rogue One sort of showed me. Rogue One sort of calm my nerves a little bit as far as how they're going to handle all the spinoff movies yeah um, you know I, I just I, I like the cast that they've got for the Han Solo movie I think it's going to be exciting even though like I think with prequels it, it is kind of weird because with prequels it, you know that the the main characters are going to survive so it sort of yeah. drains like the narrative tension out of it I just feel like that character has been so thoroughly explored by Harrison Ford yeah uh, you know, I don't know what else there is to do. And here, here's my biggest complaint about uh, Star Wars anything. There's 25,000 years of Star Wars, you know. Been, you know, for a thousand generations, the Jedi were peace, you know. It, all we explore is like this 20-year gap, you know, between episode one and, and eight. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, maybe a movie about what, what Ben was doing on Tatooine for 20 years. Was he planting a garden? Was he killing sand people? Was he, uh, was, he, was he building fortifications for Tatooine possums? He, he may have been, yeah. 
Alright, as much as we probably both could talk for another full episode on Star Wars, that is not the reason for this episode. Uh, if you listen for any length of time, or follow me on Twitter, or read anything I write, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time making fun of faith-based movies. Uh, a lot of the faith-based movies that come out are sort of goofy, or, or like overly earnest, which I guess to me makes them ripe for goofing on. But I was talking with Chris, and we decided we would put together a list of some of the best or most influential faith-based movies and sort of give them like a serious like a serious shot at talking about them and digesting them and and debating them on on an episode so that's what we're going to do tonight um chris and i talked about this we came up with a list of of four films we almost put the movie silence on there chris i know you saw it Uh, you seem like you 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 enjoyed it pretty much didn't you yeah, uh, you know, it, it was a thoughtful movie. Uh, I wanted to see it in the theater, but it, it like it appeared and was gone in like a week or something. Uh, yeah. Apparently, it, it bombed seriously in the, in the box office. Yeah, I, I knew we were doing this episode. I, I tried to watch the movie, and I'm just going to be honest, I couldn't make it all the way through. <laughs> well, it's, I, it's, it's I, I, had, I had to turn the subtitles on, uh-huh. even though it's in English. The Japanese accents are so thick. And uh, of the three European actors, one's Liam Nielsen with his <laughs> Irish Irish brogue, and then the other one's uh, uh, Kylo Ren with his, uh, you know, uh, sort of Marlon Brando mumbling going on. Uh, th- after the fifth time that I had to rewind a scene, I just like, okay, I got to watch the subtitles. Okay. So it's it's got a little Terrence Malick in it, in the sense that you really got to be in the right mood to sit down and, and digest it. It's not something. Yeah, it's just it's not it's not a light light viewing movie. It's you got to sit down for have a good you know two and a half hours of your life to spend. <laughs> okay, so the movies we did come up with. Um, do you want to start us off? Do you want to start us off with Ten Commandments? Okay, I, I love this movie and I love it despite itself. Um, in nineteen. 19- 50 whatever when it was made i i know it was groundbreaking cinema you know and it's it's still like a really good example of epic filmmaking watching it you know with our 21st century revisionist you know mind it's hard to enjoy the film given that yule brenner is the blackest person in the film <laughs> and in a movie that takes place exclusively in north africa <laughs> you know uh, Yul Brenner is the only person you can you can kind of see was like maybe maybe would actually be from there, um, and and it's not so much that they're white; it's that, that like people are really really white. I mean, it, you know, Vincent Price is the master builder uh, with his fancy affected you know accent. Uh, uh, yes, my little desert flower, my, my little mud flower. I'd hate to see you get soiled down there with all the slaves, and then. Um, Edward G. Robinson, you know, is, is the rat. You know, ah, Pharaoh, ah, I serve only you, ah. And then uh, John Carradine, who is probably best known for, for, you know, taking on the role of Dracula after Bela Lugosi. Well, no, I think he's best known for, for fathering the Carradine family, you know, uh, David and, and all the others. But uh, him is uh, Aaron. I mean, there's, oh, it's just, I love the cast. I love the individual actors. But it's so hard to like imagine you're in, you're in Egypt of three thousand years ago when you see these people performing. For a faith based movie, um, if if you're going to judge it on a scale of 
uh, faithfulness to the source material being scripture in this point. How, how do you judge it? Um, I, I would give it a very high marking because okay, l- let me back up. I got to explain my feeling about Charlton Heston to explain okay. what I'm. Thinking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Charlton Heston comes from the William Shatner school of acting. I <laughs> can't believe you said that. I was going to make that point. I mean, he is a ham, you know? <laughs> um, but his level of charisma is so high, you overlook his, his hamminess. Um, I, I found that his, his not, not after he comes down from the mountain and he's got the white hair and he's, you know, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. Not everything prior to that was very endearing when he's sort of questioning and, you know, why would God do this if God's real? I, I thought that, that, that actually, you know, was, was thought provoking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I seriously, like, we didn't talk about this. We didn't compare notes before we did this, but like when I was going back over, I was like, Charlton Heston is William Shatner because he, he's chewing the scenery, but his commitment to the drama sort of lends this spirit of, of gravitas almost despite yourself. Like you can't help but be yeah. sucked into it. He, he's never winking at, at you and letting you know this is all a joke. He's, it's, he's paying it for real. Yeah. He's, he's, it's, it's like 100% commitment that it's like you find yourself respecting even when it's a little bit silly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, you know, can we give this points for the, uh, for the electric eroticism of the dance inside the tent with the, with the daughters. <laughs> um, was that who, who, who's, whose tent was that? I'm, I'm drawing a Was it Laban's tent? Uh, uh, I don't know. I, they, they were Jethro's daughters, Jethro's right? I can't tent. Okay, yeah. Different part yeah. of the story. You got it. That and uh, um, what, the Lily Munster, I can't think of the actress's <laughs> name now, but Lily, Lily Munster was his, his wife. And, uh, but the girl who played Pharaoh's, uh, daughter or niece, whatever she was, man, she was she was smoking, and uh, I, I, sometimes I was surprised that movie was actually let on, you know, broadcast television in the eighties because mm-hmm. uh, her the translucentness of her of her little blue gown is uh, I don't know how that made it past the censors actually <laughs> in the nineteen fifties. You know, my favorite part of that movie is, and this is just like the random thing, but my favorite part is. Uh, is when Moses spends a day slumming it up with the slaves and goes into her private quarters caked in mud and she's like revolted by him and like goes to her little jar and is like throwing cloves on him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know why that cracks me up every time I see it. I'm like, what, what's that going to do? <laughs> He's covered in mud. Like you're, <laughs> you're throwing some daisy petals on him. Like that's going <laughs> to make him presentable. I don't know. That's just a weird thing. Uh, yeah, it's really sort of transcendent as far as um, I feel like it, it got respect both as a mainstream movie and, of course, you know, faith-based movies didn't really exist back then. But even looking at it now, it's it's like respected as a faith-based film and as a, a, a classic example of cinema. Well, I would have to go back and look at the timeline to make sure these movies all came out afterward, but. I, you know, that movie started a, a big trend. Uh, it was followed by Ben-Hur, I think, the next year. And uh, there were a lot of biblical epics um, over the, the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, that, that, you know, I, Richard Burton started about half of them, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, that movie was very influential for the decade. Yeah. 
Okay, we may jump back to that. Uh, I want to bring up Passion of the Christ. Uh, it's sort of, I don't want to say the bellwether, but if you're looking at like technical quality of the film, if you want to look at faithfulness to the source material, which would be the New Testament, I mean, Passion of the Christ is is really sort of the standard as far as faith-based movies of the modern era. And even if you want to look at things like you know box office receipts of, of how well it was received and even critical acclaim. All that being said, not, <laughs> this feels sacrilegious to even say this, not, not an easy movie to sit down and watch. Well, it, it's a concept film. That, you know, I, I don't think you can watch it as, is this supposed to be, uh, I don't, is the narrative supposed to be meaningful? I don't think that's why you watch the film. Yeah. It's a concept film. Um, you know, it's like one of those movies you see that takes place in real time or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, it, it, it was going to happen sooner or later uh, because I, I think for, I don't know, I'm 90% of Americans, uh, Jesus exists as one of two characters, either as the baby in the nativity or the guy who died on the cross. Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like that's become, it's like World War II. People know about uh Pearl Harbor and the A-bomb, everything else in between is kind of hazy. So somebody sooner or later was going to make a film just about this, you know, that, that one instance. So, uh, you know, as, as a work of film, I, I think uh, he did a pretty good job of, you know, keeping your attention for uh, two-plus hours about a relatively short, you know, instance. It is kind of frustrating that, they could make a film of that quality with that 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 much attention to historical detail and get so much of it right like they couldn't do that for other parts of Jesus's life as well like that that was always a frustrating thing to me um well it's funny you say that um the parts of that movie i liked best were the flashbacks i thought the yeah. flashbacks were much more enjoyable yeah uh yeah. Now, I think Jim Caviezel probably, I think probably a lot of women liked Jim Caviezel's, uh, mus- you know, muscular, good-looking Jesus. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I felt, you know, he was disarming, you know, when he wasn't, you know, moaning, covered in blood. Uh, the scene where uh, Mary remembers him falling as a child and she rushes to pick him up, I thought that was a very touching moment. Yeah. It, th- that moved me a lot more than the gore or the violence. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would have, I would have liked to seen a two-hour movie of Jim Caviezel, you know, you, you know, in the week leading up to the crucifixion. Yeah, or even like you know, set the movie at the Sermon on the Mount or something like yeah. that, and then have like flashbacks going forward and back, you know, from that as your or you know, as your as your baseline. But um, I thought the resurrection scene in that movie was, was really well done. Uh, there, there's a lot of ways that, that that could have been done cheesily. Yeah, um, you know, I think that what what year would that come out? Two thousand four or something like that. Two thousand four. Um, you know, that was that was a heyday for really bad CGI. Um, yeah, I, th- I think they could have screwed that up by making, <laughs> you know, by giving us a CGI resurrection. When, um, but I think that really just speaks to Mel Gibson's talent as a filmmaker. Was he understood? You know, the less I show here you know, the more I'm, I'm, I'm actually saying, and I think you got that in, in that sort of profile shot of, of Jesus's hand with, with the hole in it. 
that that movie has aged better than his other films. Um, I think I really enjoyed Braveheart when it came out, uh-huh. and then when I watched it ten years later, I thought, oh, I can't stand this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And then The Patriot was, you know, and so I, yeah, I, I think Passion of the Christ has, has aged better than his other films. Yeah, I also defend the movie Apocalypto. I, yes, yes. Um, now that came out after Passion, right? Yeah, it, did. it was sort of his so, cleanse, cleanse the palate movie. Yeah, um, yeah. I think one of the reasons he he did a movie that like that was he, he caught a lot of flack. Which you know, I mean, I'm not saying this because I'm a Christian, but I think the flack he caught for Passion of the Christ was just frankly ridiculous. As far as you know, people just up in arms that somehow this was going to inspire, you know, mass waves of you know anti-Semitic violence. Which I mean, did, did any of that happen? I don't think any of it happened. Um, South Park did a I, I thought it was a pretty good parody called Passion of the Jew. <laughs> I can uh, neither confirm nor deny that I've seen that. <laughs> and I, I I think what they showed in the parody I I I can vouch for having seen where. You know, people come out of the movie and they're like, oh, my, I can't believe he went through that. Boy, I, I feel so bad. I want to be a good Christian now. You know, and, and there was a lot of that emotional reaction that people had to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think that the, the kids go to go see the movie and they're like, you know, two for Passion of the Christ, please. And the guy says, son, that's a rated R movie. I can't let anyone in under 18. But since this is such an important movie about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and let you in anyway. So... I, I, I think I think the South Park parody was pretty accurate as far as the social of the movie, but um, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm gonna Passion of the Christ is kind of like Showgirls. There's <laughs> there's our bumper quote right there. <laughs> there's not nearly as much nudity in Showgirls as people remember that there is. You know, there's not nearly as much nudity as you think there is. I was homeschooled, so I'm 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 not able to comment on this. Well, just trust me. There's not. Um, Passion of the Christ is a solid hours. Okay, basically, it's a tough ten minute surging scene. It's hard to watch, and then about twenty minutes of Romans being you know kind of jerks and abusing him, and then it's like forty five minutes of Pilate trying not to kill Jesus. You know, are you sure you want me to kill him? Uh, I don't have to. uh, You know. It's it's not nearly as violent as people remember. Uh, you know, kind of like Saving Private Ryan. It's a two-hour film, and what you remember is the first thirty minutes. Yeah, that's true. Um, the scourging scene is overindulgent, I think, but it's not. It's nearly as violent as what people remember. Do you think that movie suffered at all because of Mel Gibson's personal life? Oh yeah, yeah. If if Mel Gibson had been Steven Spielberg or uh, Ridley Scott, someone that stayed more or less out of the public eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, his drunken shenanigans just, you know, it gives people the opportunity to go see. I told you, I told you. Yeah. Which is probably not entirely fair. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, we, we celebrate Roman Polanski's movies in America. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was just about to say ninth, ninth gate is one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, you know, how do I reconcile that with my personal feelings about Roman Polanski? You know, and, you know, I just try to not think about it when I watch Ninth Gate. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of uh, speaking of of somber, um, very serious 
faith-based movies. Let's go to one that doesn't exactly fit that bill, which is <laughs> Last Temptation of the Christ. <laughs> which, you know, I'm joking. It, 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 does, it does approach it seriously in its own way. Well, uh, again, this, this is sort of a concept film. Um, now, this, now, you know, passion can't hold a candle to Last Temptation in terms of controversy. Yeah, this is true. Uh, I mean, I, I think people actually burned movie theaters down when Last Temptation aired. Uh, it was a very controversial film. It, it didn't seem to have a negative impact, though, on anyone's career because most of the people who disliked the movie didn't never saw it and weren't moviegoers. Yeah. Um, but Jim Caviezel, you know, has said that La- that Passion of the Christ kind of did a, uh, a whammy on his career. Yeah. Uh, and suppose Mel Gibson warned him that it would. Yeah. Um, so Last Temptation didn't really have much of a lasting impact on anybody. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's an art house film. Uh, you know, if I were to compare it to, say, uh, uh, Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, you know, that's kind of an artsy film, too. Um, well, I would say this. I, I think it happened before the internet. I think if oh, it yeah. happened after the internet, I think um, religious conservatives would have blown it up. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it, it would have been tweeted about constantly. Yeah. Um, there's there's a, a painting. It's by a pre-Raphaelite painter. I think it's Malias, but it may not have been. Don't quote me. But uh, it's called uh, Christ in the Home of His Parents. Yeah, and uh, this is late 19th century, and the, the painting is of uh, a little kid Jesus, maybe seven or eight years old, and he's you know like his dad's workshop, and uh, you know he's got a boo boo on his hand. Mm-hmm. He's he's hurt himself, you know, playing with the school or something, and Mary is on her knees, kind of kissing the boo boo to make it better. It's a, it's a very heartwarming painting. That painting made so many people angry when it came out because. You go back to this idea that in most people's mind, Christ is either a baby in the nativity or he's dying on the cross. Yeah. And th- there's nothing in between. No one wants to think about, you know, toddler Jesus throwing a fit or teenage Jesus being awkward around girls or, you know, 20-something Jesus trying to, uh, you know, find a career or something. Uh, people don't want to think about that. And, and, and that was just a painting that made people mad because they didn't like to see this awkward, you know, child Jesus getting a boo-boo. Um, so, you know, there's lots of problems with The Last Temptation of Christ, <laughs> but there's lots of problems with it. But the story is not one of the problems. Okay, so you let's, know? Let's, let's set the... Um, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say probably most of the people who listen to this have never seen Last Temptation of the Christ. Um, so let's sort of describe the movie in a general term. I, I would say... Um, it, it's we'll, we'll talk more about this. It does play fast with the biblical account, um, but it's a story that tries to center on the humanity of Jesus in a way that had not yeah. been done before. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, you use the word humanity. Um, uh, in, in the first few hundred years after Christ's death, say three, four, five hundred years after, the problem for the church wasn't convincing people that he was divine. The problem was convincing people that he was also a man, because if he was completely divine, then none of his teachings have any relevance to us. You know, you can sure it's fine for you to say turn the other cheek, you're God, but you know I got to live with these jerks. Um, 
you know, you, you can give Caesar whatever Caesar, but uh, you're dead now. I still got to pay taxes. Uh, so, but if in fact he was a man, then that means he had the same problems I had and the same struggles. And if he could find a way to rise above it, then maybe I can too. So it was convincing people that he was still human. That was the hard part. And I thought that's kind of what this movie was was playing at was, you know, that he had fear and he had anxiety and you know, there's a difference between want to and willingness to, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and it was someone who was willing to follow this path that God set before him, but maybe he didn't want to follow it. And we talk about the, the controversy. Let's let's say why that controversy happened. Um, not much, just that it focused on his humanity. Um, but there were some. One of the one of the plot arcs in in the movie was about Jesus and his relationship to Mary Magdalene. Yeah, that was an ongoing theme. Who in the movie is a prostitute, and uh, towards the end of the movie, there is a a you could call it a flashback where um, it's where the, the last temptation comes in. Um, Jesus is on the cross; he's approached by. Uh, Satan, based more or less Satan, and says, you know, why don't you come down off the cross? You know, this was all just a test, and uh, it's the movie then sort of speeds up and shows just living out the rest of his time on Earth, and he is with Mary Magdalene, um, and it shows them having sex, and it's not—I w- I wouldn't say it's gratuitous, but it, I mean it does show that. Um, um, well, yeah, but w- but within the context of the film, that's when Jesus and her had been married. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's true. So that's true. It wasn't anything salacious and and i want to talk to you about this is that whole that whole section right there of from the cross where he comes down lives out the rest of his days uh then at the end realizes he's made a mistake and asks god to take him back and then all of a sudden we're back on the cross um if that was if if that whole thing actually happened in the movie and jesus did live out the rest of his days and then god reached down and put him back on the cross that carries a completely different meaning <laughs> than if that was yeah. just you know, all, all that stuff was just happening in his mind while he was on the cross. Right. Um, well, yeah, the, the, the titular last temptation comes at the two hour mark of a two and a half hour film. You know, the, <laughs> it, you're waiting two hours for the last temptation to happen. So, and what, then when it happens, it, it, like you say, it just kind of blows by you very quickly. So what was your take? It, it was that, whole coda there of him living as a man marrying Mary Magdalene and raising a family in the movie do you think that actually happened and God just put him back or do you think it was all happening in his mind I'm hoping it was a delusion in his mind and here's why okay. uh, the whole reward of life is experience your your memories you know uh, that you remember you have fond memories of your first kiss or uh, a great film or a spaghetti dinner or, or whatever you know, and so if, if if he does, in fact, get to live out his whole life and then only at the very end go, ah, I changed my mind. I'm going to die for your sins. Well, he's already got the best parts of life. He's he's got he's got the memories. He's got love. He's got kids. I mean, we should all be so lucky that on our deathbed we can uh, get a, get a do over. You know, so I'm hoping it was just all in his head. It totally changes everything. Like as far as the movie's faithfulness to scripture, which, you know, by that point it was really shaky, but there's such a wide variance there of if, if he actually lived an entire life and had to be, you know, plucked and dragged back through time by God, the father, then it's a, you know, then it's just a, 
not even remotely biblical movie. No. But if it's all happening in his mind, and that's just a part of his last temptation, I mean, you could sort of at that point make the case that, yeah, it's it's a little misguided in the first couple hours, but it's ultimately pretty respectful to, you know, the person of Jesus. Yeah, I agree. Um, but we didn't talk about the, the most glaring uh, problem. <laughs> Harvey Keitel, <laughs> just Harvey Keitel's Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn accented Judas. <laughs> you know, you know, some actors believe you don't have to work on accents <laughs> or uh, actually, you know, pretend that you're someone else. Uh, I, I, I like actors that try to actually pretend that someone else. <laughs> um, well, first off, let's start with his flaming red hair. <laughs> uh, was Judas supposed to be some Celt? That had 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 escaped from Britannia via the Roman army. Uh, what was you know? You you can't get away from his accent. Uh, he, was, he was a couple steps away from being Woody Allen as Judas. <laughs> I I just expected him to go. You know, hey, I'm walking here at some point. Um. Harvey Keitel should never be cast in anything that takes place prior to like the 20th century <laughs> ever. He shouldn't be in a cowboy movie. He shouldn't. There's a movie. Oh, I wish I could think of the name now. It's a terrible, terrible film. It's called like laser night or star <laughs> night or something. It's this movie. It's, it's like, it, it's a movie about like space aliens that kidnap a knight from King Arthur's. I can't remember. It's so terrible, but it's got Harvey Keitel as the knight. Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> it's early, early, like, like maybe, maybe like circa taxi driver. Oh, it's a terrible film. Okay, so my problem with with the Judas character is just so hard to ignore because not only is he got a Brooklyn accent in in Bible times, but they 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 change the the biblical narrative to where Judas is suddenly the secondary protagonist in the story. Yeah, where this is the one that understands that he's the son of God, and then you got this like this weird monologue that Judas has at the at the very end where he's like admonishing Jesus of rabbi, you broke my heart. You broke yeah. my heart. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, Roger Ebert had this, had this, this riff that he would go on sometimes when he was talking about movies that, you know, shocking, shocking has to have context. That's what makes shocking interesting. But when you're just being shocking for the sake of being shocking, that's boring. Like that's not interesting at all. And that's what struck me, like how they, how they reinterpreted the Judas character of, you know, yeah, that's kind of edgy to make Judas somehow the good guy, but like it, it does, it's just distracting. Like it doesn't really add anything to the story. Like you could have had Peter fill that role. You could have had John fill that role and it would have been fine. I, I thought that I think with Harry Dean Stanton, I thought the guy who played Paul in the film, yeah. I think mm-hmm. I, I actually thought his character was a little bit more interesting uh, at the at, when Jesus is having his, uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, brush with reality toward the end of the film, uh-huh. you know, and, and Paul uh, is sort of confronting Jesus about how the the mythical Jesus is more important than the real Jesus. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I thought I thought Harding sentence Paul would was a much more interesting character. Um, you, you know, I, I I get that they were trying to make Judas less of a black and white villain, mm-hmm. you know, like he was in the Mel Gibson film where he's just, uh, uh, you know, seeing demons and, you know, things like that. Uh, 
but uh, uh, it's just it's I, it's it's hard to get around Harvey Keitel's character. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, can I, can I get a little um, Woody Allen as Judas? What would Woody Allen as Judas sound like? Oh, uh, I just I don't know what t- to betray you. I don't know what, what what am I doing here? What's my motivation, Jesus? Yeah, Har- Harvey was more like. I swear, Jesus, if you step out of line one time, one, I'm going to kill you, Jesus. I swear to God, I'm going to kill you. You, you. you stir from revolution for even a second. That's it, Jesus. Um, it, was, it was like Woody Allen mixed with a little Mo Howard from the Three Stooges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Segwaying seamlessly from Mo Howard to Robert Duvall. Um, you had never seen The Apostle. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movie The Apostle. It came out in 1997, 99, I think. Nin- 1997. I, when, you, when you recommended it, I looked it up. And, and, and this is why I'd never heard of the film. Uh, 1997 was uh, my, my, my world tour with the Army. Okay. Uh, I spent the year off in South Korea. I ended the year in Bosnia. And in between was like Germany and like two weeks in the States. Mm-hmm. So... I, every every bit of pop culture from that time period is like it was, it was like basically being in prison. I have no idea what happened. Well, let me tell you uh, my let me tell you my experience with the Apostle, and then then you tell me your experience of watching it just now for the first time. Uh, it's one of those for me that like it, I had to sit with it for a while and then come back and um, because I think Robert Duvall in that movie is, is he he takes a little getting used to. He's not a likable character yes there you go uh, and you know to, to have a protagonist for two plus hours that you don't like but you still want to see what happens to him that's not an easy feat for an actor to pull off but he was an interesting protagonist oh yeah yeah he, it felt i don't want to say real because there was a little bit of caricature about him but it was a complete character how about that well, the caricature was the the Robert Duvall caricature that you see in like his, you know, Gus from Lonesome Dove, uh, you know, that, that just that's just sort of his cantankerousness okay. that I think is is just Robert Duvall. Uh, you know, the guy's been married like four times. He's, I think, I think he's got a little bit of character in him. You know, uh, so the dude, funny character. What, what was your what was your reaction to it, seeing it for the first time in 2017? Well, okay, first off. Uh, I, I don't like most movies that take place in the South because they're very unrealistic depictions of the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's either some idealized Reese Witherspoon, you know, <laughs> or it's, uh, it, you know, the, the exact opposite. And we're all like horrible, ignorant racists. Yeah. Uh, now I love Forrest Gump movie, seen it a hundred times, very unrealistic depiction of the South. You know, yeah. I don't know anybody that lives in a plantation or, or that talks, you know, like that. Yeah, the most realistic depiction I've ever seen of the South is Sling Blade. I thought that was spot on, and I thought I thought this one is right up there. Uh, nobody had those those fake Southern accents. Uh, Walter Goggins is one of my you know, favorite actors. Uh, that's one of his first films, I think. Yeah, he just kind of slips right in there. Like you, you don't even I didn't even realize it was him at first. Yeah. Um, so I, I I don't meet people like. Uh, Robert Duvall's character, EF. I don't meet people like that much anymore, but I can remember people like that from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I will still occasionally run across older folks from like, you know, 
North Alabama, you know, Florence, Huntsville area, you know, that, that are like that. Um, I, I thought it was a, it was a realistic character. Um, it, it would have been easy to show him as a corrupt hypocrite. Yeah, um, absolutely. But they didn't do that. They, they gave us somebody who was genuinely very good and trying to do God's work, but at the, all, at the same time, could very easily, you know, engage in some reprehensible, you know, character flaws. So let's uh, set the table here for people who haven't seen it. Um, in the in the movie, Robert Duvall plays a sort of a swaggering, um, not a megachurch, but a swaggering minister of a large church, and um, is having problems at home, and his wife is having an affair with, I guess it's the youth pastor. They never yeah. quite say, I think they said it's the youth pastor. Yeah. The church. Um, spoiler alert. He gets drunk, attacks the youth pastor, um, kills him and, uh, ends up going on the run into the bayou under an, an assumed identity. And, and from that point on, it's like this weird movie of like, he's trying to earn back. It's like, he's trying to earn back God's graces through works. Like he doesn't, it's almost like he can't quite believe that he can be forgiven without earning it. But at the same time, like he's not exactly just ready to go turn himself into the police either. No, he's, he's, he's not ready to, uh, you know, pay, pay his, uh, pay his comeuppance just yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, and the, and the opening scene is just, is just really incredible where he happens upon the car wreck with the two kids yeah, and he gets out, and this is on YouTube. This scene, you can go and 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 look that up if you want to. But, um, and just you know, sort of inserts himself into the uh, the scene of the accident where these kids are in the car and looks like they're about to die, and and leads them through the prayer of salvation, and then just wanders back to his car, drives off. Like he's just certain that God had him there for that exact purpose. Uh, speaking of that scene, I, I was so glad that they got June Carter Cash to play his mom. Uh-huh. Um, it, it lended authenticity because, you know, I, I think she sort of came from that world herself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the Carter family, is that what they're called, the Carter family? Yeah. Or, anyway, you know, they, they, they you know, were gospel singers. So that, that was some authenticity making her his, his mom, even though it was a small part. How great was the Billy Bob Thornton character? Uh, this, the scene where he drives up with the bulldozer and he's going to knock the church over. Yeah. I was, I was like, okay, where is this going? Exactly. Um, exactly. Um, so the, the Robert Duvall's character, f- um, brings back this multiracial church deep in the bayou and they're having a, a cookout and he's already had a run in with Billy Bob Thornton who doesn't appreciate the fact that now there's all of a sudden a, a church with black people in his neighborhood and, uh, he shows up with a bulldozer to knock it down and uh, scene unfolds in a, I mean, have you ever seen a scene unfold in a more unexpected way? No, no. Um, it felt very genuine. Sometimes like when there's a scene that, that dovetails in a weird way like that, you can trace it back and say, okay, well I've seen that in another movie. There's nothing there. Like I've never seen anything like that in a different film of how that scene unfolds. Yeah. And as the scene unfolds, uh, basically Robert Duvall stands in front of the uh, the bulldozer and sets a Bible on the ground, and and Billy Bob Thornton gets out and comes over, and you're, you're wondering like, are they going to fight? 
what's going to happen. And uh, essentially, Robert Duvall just puts his hands on Billy Bob Thornton and just starts praying for him, like right then. And it's sort of like this weird like moment of spiritual authenticity that just comes out of nowhere in the movie. And then yeah. you never see... It makes me wonder like, if, if there was stuff left on the cutting room floor of what happened to the Billy Bob character, because you never see him again the rest of the movie. No, it, it was such a long movie that they probably did have to, to cut that out. Or I, I, it's like there should have been more follow up with that character, mm-hmm. but it was interesting. Yeah, I, I kept looking for him to show up at at the very end at the at the at the last church service. That would have been a really powerful piece of closure to see him there. But um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was more real uh, that we we never saw him again. That you know, yeah. Maybe he just retreated back to wherever he came from and had to deal with it, deal with things in his own way. How, how do you how do you how would you rate the apostle as a faith based movie? Like when you hold it up against the other ones, do you think it's how do you think it stacks up? Uh, if a person is okay with the idea of a complex moral character, you know, uh, then I, I would say it stacks up pretty well. It it shows uh, a guy who's capable of doing some pretty bad things, but also has a genuine desire to uh, to do good, uh, and he. Um, it, it, it reminded me of Denzel Washington's Malcolm X performance when he was when he was doing his preaching because mm-hmm. it, it it just really seemed Denzel Washington seemed like he was channeling somebody else when he was when he was you know doing the 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 sermon parts or the the speech parts mm-hmm. and Robert Duvall I mean when he was when he would be preaching it, I mean he was it, he he seemed so real. Yeah. I mean, it's so 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 much energy coming through him mm-hmm. um, during those things. Yeah, I think the first time, and I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians had this reaction. Was it, it sort of felt like they were making fun of Christians at first, just because his character was so garish and so had so many sharp edges. But like, if you well, if you can get past that, I think it's really a very sympathetic character. I mean, he, he he could be viewed as a caricature, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there are people like him. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say it was making fun. Uh, if anything, I would say it was sort of kind of an embrace of saying, hey, look, you know, the, the, these wacky holiness guys, you know, uh, you know, maybe uh, have something going on here. Mm-hmm. I, I like the, the little montage the, uh, where... He's going from one uh, church to the other, and you see him with uh, the the lady translating in Spanish, uh, and uh, he's you know, and we're gonna we're gonna stomp on the devil, and she's 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 not only translating his words, she's also uh, pantomiming you know the actions of stomping on the devil. I is thought that, that was little, a, a there's like a painting of Jesus right next to them, and she's got like a white cowboy hat on or something. It, little is such little touches like that. The, the movie was done with such care of like, you know, just how Robert Duvall would have to pause and wait for her to translate. Yeah. And he was like, he'd be suspended mid rage waiting for her to, yeah. to, to finish. And then he'd go right back into it. And, and just little, little touches too. Like when they're, when they're arresting him and he, he takes off all of his jewelry and sets it on the cop car and tells Walton Goggins, take this. It's for the church. Yeah. Um, just it's it's just done the movie is done with such care 
uh, you can tell you can tell that it was Robert Duvall's passion project to to do yeah. this movie and do it right. That being said, there's a lot of movies like this, but one of the the top examples of the whole movie is trashed if it takes place in the age of cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't just cross a state line and disappear <laughs> if everybody no. has a cell phone and can pull it up and just Google. Uh, who's this guy that just appeared? Oh, okay. He's he's wanted for murder. Yeah, that that, that that's true. In the age of uh, Wikipedia, uh, EF uh, suddenly loses his mystery. <laughs> Maybe shouldn't have picked his own initials to be. <laughs> yeah. To be his uh, his nom de plume, as it were. Chris Allen. Thank you for coming on the show and, and, and debating some faith-based movies. Thank you very much. I think the next time you come on, I think I think we both should do an entire show in just the voice of Woody Allen, Judas Iscariot. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's pretty tough. Can we, can we debate uh, The Last Jedi as, as two Woody Allen Judases? Sure. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. I right, thank you.